0: Let's bow again in prayer. Oh Lord, in reading this rich collection of texts of Scripture, we once again sense that because of your greatness, because of the wonders of you, our God, and of the greatness of your redemption, and of the supremacy of Jesus, our Savior, Lord, we understand and affirm that it is your intent to see and have your gospel of Jesus Christ be proclaimed, not just in geographical areas that are familiar to us, but all around this world. How we thank you that you have set this plan in in motion. How we thank you that you have graciously allowed us to understand it and to hear of it, to take part in it. And how we thank you that you are in the process of using your people to see it brought to an end. Someday, one day. Until then, we pray that even today you may help us to understand our part in your story. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. I would imagine most of you have had the experience, as I have had many times, to come upon a very still and calm lake and a lake whose surface is sort of like glass. I mean, you, just, you can see the reflection of the sky, Everything's so still, and you take a rock and you throw that rock into that lake. And what happens? Well, we all know ripples always are going to radiate outward from the impact where that rock landed in the water. And if small stones, as you know, uh, will only generate Small ripples But imagine, and this takes some imagining. Imagine a massive boulder. I've been wanting to been tempted to say a massive asteroid, but I'm not going to go there. I'm just going to say a massive boulder is somehow dislodged and is making its way and lands into a large, not just a small pond, a large lake. And that lake, at that point, has what happened. The energy that would be released at that moment would propel and send radiating waves, not just ripples, waves in all directions. Can you see that in your mind? We're all headed for high ground, probably, just seeing it in our minds. It, the, the waves would be inescapable. It would be it would have an unstoppable impact that would be seen and felt far, far, far away. Now, we're looking and thinking about concluding the book of Acts today. And I want to just keep reminding you, as I've said this many times, I know you're ready for us to move on. We're all going to move on here, but this today is the last one, but... Um, you'll know that Acts is a sister book of the Gospel of Luke. And so we understand that Luke's first book, the Gospel, is a book that concludes an eyewitness account of what I would like to say is a massive worldview-changing boulder that lands into and hits the water of world history. It is the birth and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, which is really the founding and establishment of Christianity. So Christianity, in Luke's first book, helps us understand that God took on human flesh. Jesus Christ really was born. He really was human. He lived a perfect, sinless, righteous life. And in living that life, did not deserve how he was treated at the end of his life, but he laid down his life willingly. He died in the place of sinners, and God raised him from the dead. Victorious. It is in the second book that Luke wrote. That's how the first book of Luke ends. Jesus has been raised from the dead. This massive boulder now has just landed, just had the impact upon that huge lake of world history. Luke's second book picks up where the gospel left off. It begins after Jesus' resurrection. There he is. He is in his resurrected body. He's in Jerusalem, and we read in verse 3 of chapter 1 of the book of Acts that Jesus presented himself alive by many, not just a couple, not just a few, many convincing proofs appearing to his apostles over a period of not just a couple of days, 40 days he's among them. Again, Massive waves of influence are going outward in impacting lives during those 40 days. And before Jesus ascends to heaven, he commissions his followers. He says to them, listen, you are to bear witness. You are to be part of this influence of outwardly moving, radiating taking of the ripples as it were on the pond and moving like those ripples outwardly taking the good news of jesus christ to the four corners of the world and so the book of acts begins with that and now we're coming to the conclusion of that second book of luke the book of acts chapter 28 and we're looking this morning at the last couple of verses so if you got your bible find your way there to acts 28 Everybody can know for sure that next week's sermon will not be on Acts. The Sunday after that will not be on Acts. But here we go. The book of Acts concludes with the Apostle Paul. So we've moved from Jesus and the original apostles. Now we're in into probably a 30-year period of time has taken place. And Paul is in a place far, far away from Jerusalem. It began in Jerusalem, the book of Acts, and now is concluding in, of all places, Rome. Which I looked up and Googled it. It's 2,255 miles away. And And we understand that Paul is there. He is part of this propelling outward of the followers of Jesus with the news and good news of Christ and the gospel. And and here is Paul still bearing witness to that news and gospel. However, we read in the last two verses, verse 30 and verse 31. Last sentence. It's actually one sentence, two verses. Paul stayed two full years in his own rented quarters. Parentheses, meaning he's still under house arrest. He still has not had his hearing. He still has not been set free through this process of which he appealed to Caesar. And he was welcoming all who came to him, preaching the kingdom of God and teaching concerning the Lord Jesus Christ with all openness unhindered. That's it. It stops. Period. Now, does that strike you as being a rather odd conclusion? to that book I mean think about it doesn't it sort of lack a sense of finality and everyone lived happily forever you know whatever I mean no there's no he's still stuck there and he's still doing these things it doesn't seem to have a sense in which it's really done because the verbs in that last sentence are ongoing welcoming preaching teaching, unhindered with openness. It seems to me that Luke leaves the reader expecting another sequel. He's already written one now. He wrote the Gospel of Luke. He wrote the sequel, Book of Acts. And now he's like, we're ready for the next one. Did you get that sense? At least I did. It seems that Luke deliberately chose This ending to his impressive writing here to give the impression that the story doesn't end here. The story keeps going. As a matter of fact, the radiating waves of Christian witness, the radiating waves of the proclamation of the good news of Jesus Christ, continues to move outward in ever-expanding mission. And I'd like to expand on that thought in two ways this morning. The story of the gospel continues on in two ways. First of all, point number one, there's a continuing expansion. The gospel keeps moving outward over barriers gospel moves outward over barriers i've thought more and more about this as i've concluded this this book and just it's so unique and unusual and and really interesting luke recorded an inordinate amount of details and information regarding the hurdles and the challenges that the apostle paul faced that he had to somehow overcome in order to fulfill this idea of the outward radiating moving outward away from Jerusalem with the good news of Christ. And so here's Paul now finally having arrived from Jerusalem, which is where the book began. That's where Luke that's where Paul was by the way in Acts 21. Paul was in Jerusalem and it takes 8 chapters of content to get him from Jerusalem to Rome it's almost a third of the book what's that all about as we know we've already been through these things he experienced a riot in Jerusalem he had death threats on his life there he has his long jail term in Cesarea, waiting very likely the authorities are waiting for bribes you know they're looking for some money maybe they'd let him go at that point never came Eventually, he is in a dangerous shipwreck as he's traveling by ship. I mean, it's just an incredible amount of detail they throw in there. And it really sort of begs the question, what keeps Paul still motivated to keep on sharing the good news of Jesus? Again, Luke ends his second book at this point. The last words there, preaching kingdom, teaching concerning the Lord Jesus Christ with all openness unhindered. But, in concluding that though, it seems to me that you compare other portions of Scripture and if you also uh, sort of understand the bigger picture what happened here, we understand that Paul was released at some point. It doesn't record it specifically here. But we know that Paul was released. He did go further into other areas of ministry. Don't know specifically. Don't have an actual record of that thing. But we do believe that he did. Uh, Philemon chapter Philemon verse twenty-two. It seems to indicate. Listen, I'm going to be heading out of here soon. So get your place ready for me. Um, Tradition insists that Paul was after that period of time of having been released. He was re-arrested, and he was put to death by Nero. in uh, in and around A.D. 65. So I'm raising the question in my mind, what has motivated Paul? What motivates the followers of Jesus? What motivates believers to endure such hardships, such challenges, such disasters, such suffering with this idea of moving outward with the gospel? It certainly wasn't money. It definitely wasn't power. It wasn't personal fulfillment. What is it that propelled these gospel witnesses across so many barriers? And I would think, the more I've thought about it, that one of the answers we must offer here is it has to be the magnitude, the massive greatness and glory and grace of the Lord Jesus Christ in the gospel. Because going back to the opening illustration, if you have just a small little pebble and you throw that pebble in there, you can throw it in as hard as you want. But that pebble is only going to make so many ripples. They're only going to be a small little influence on that still lake. But let me tell you something. Those radiating ripples with a small stone, eventually what? Eventually they dissipate. Things go back to normal doesn't really make that big of a dent in, anything, in any particular area. And the small, tiny little wave may wash up to shore, maybe or maybe not. But not so with the magnitude of the glories of Christ in the gospel. You see, here's the point here. The, God, the massive magnificence of Christ in the gospel, through the power of the Holy Spirit, produces a perpetual outward propulsion that motivates Jesus' followers to keep on spreading the good news to any and all people. If you don't hear me say anything today, you've got to catch this point. And I think at this point, I, I just want to take a real quick, Uh, side trip over here to 2 Corinthians 5. I was rereading that the other day and I thought, you know, this maybe might say it better than I can say it, to listen to Paul's own words as to what keeps this guy going because he's writing a book, 2 Corinthians 5, in which he has been falsely accused. I mean, we saw some accusations this week of someone who's put on the spot and trying to defend his honor and his record or whatever. And so here's Paul writing his epistle now, being under attack, questioned and accused of all sorts of things, motivations that are incorrect. And what does he say? 2 Corinthians 5, verse 14. He says, it's the love of Christ that controls us. He says, that's my real motive in doing what I'm doing. Not the motives that you're alleging that I'm here for the money or I'm here for my notoriety and I'm going to take advantage of you. No, he says, the love of Christ is what's controlling us. Having concluded this, that one died for all, therefore all died. And he died for all, that they who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and rose again on their behalf. Therefore, from now on, we recognize no man according to the flesh, even though we have known Christ according to the flesh, yet now we know him thus no longer. Therefore, if any man is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old things passed away. Behold, new things have come. But this is what God has done. The graciousness of God, the glory of Christ and seeing that he's done these things and now he's brought us into the process of being, we are now what? Ambassadors. Verse 20. As though God were entreating through us, we beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. And why should we beg people to do that? Because he he made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God in him. It seems to me that you cannot understand Paul and this whole focus on how he has persisted unless you understand the massive magnificence of Christ in the gospel. Let's be honest. It's only in Jesus that you will find true life. Life that liberates us to lay down our lives for others in order to make Christ known. It is only in Jesus that all of our sufferings for the gospel are not worthy to be compared to the glory that's yet to be revealed. It is only the grace of Jesus that covers all of our sin and shame that enables and prompts us and motivates us to be willing to forgive people who reject us, who ridicule us, who revile us when we bear witness to Christ. People who have suffered, people who know what it means to have people mocking you and giving you grief and looking at you like you're crazy. Only people who have gone down that path can understand the path that Jesus was on and have deeper and more intimate fellowship with Him. I came across the quote by Richard Vermbrand, I think I eluded him not too long ago. A man who... Uh, was um, imprisoned in Romania for many, many years. He was put into a a, a solitary confinement uh, for a period, I think it was like 10 years. It was in a a ditch in the ground. Um, He was totally alone and uh, suffered a a second imprisonment with tremendous physical torture and brutality to the point where his body had those... Uh, scars on him for the rest of his life. Anyway, as a a believer who would refuse to stop preaching, he said this, There once was a fiddler who played so beautifully that everybody danced. A deaf man who could not hear the music considered them, all those who dancing, he considered them insane. And those who are with Jesus in suffering, Vermbrand says, hear this music to which other men are deaf. And they dance, and they do not care if they're considered insane. I would just modify the the quote to say this, those who are with Jesus in gospel mission, hear the music which other people cannot hear. You hear the music of the wonders and the glory and the praise of Jesus Christ. And the glories of his grace, which we sing about through all eternity. So that begs the question in my mind as I've thought about that point of the massive impact of the glory and greatness and grace of Christ. I think to myself, well, what might be hindering, what might be hindering the outward movement and motivating momentum of the gospel for us to be engaged in gospel ministry beyond our little holy huddles? beyond just staying in close fellowship with people who are like-minded and of like-precious faith. Is the hindering caused by fear? Fear of losing our friends? Fear of losing respect? Fear of losing our upward mobility in the job market? Is it fear of going to offend other people and Therefore, it results in a lack of boldness on our part to speak what we know to be true. May I remind you that Jesus had to deal with Paul on this point. Jesus had to reassure Paul personally and say, Paul, fear not. Don't be afraid. What does he say then? I am with you. I wonder if the hindering of this outward motivating momentum to move outward with the gospel, does it come from a lack of love? A lack of love for Christ? A lack of love for the lost people that would somehow hinder our witness? Could it be that our love of self, our love of comfort impedes us from moving outward toward unsaved people whose lifestyle is obviously much different than our own. Maybe for some of us, it may be a lack of understanding that we don't really understand clearly how deeply God is passionate about His glory being made known among all peoples. May I remind you that Paul, when he was stopped in his tracks and underwent his his transformation and conversion, it, it, he spent years. Studying carefully the Scriptures. Looking into the Scriptures to understand how does the scripture speak to the condition of unbelievers' hearts with the Gospel of Christ. I wonder if some of us have lost our compassion. Perhaps some of us are hindered because we've lost uh, the sight of the reality of the eternal punishment that awaits those who have Suppressed and who are suppressing the truth in unrighteousness. People who have not believed on Christ already live under the wrath of God. Are we prone to make excuses? Excuses that will hinder and slow our outward momentum. Excuses like, I'm too busy. Or, I've never had a verbal call from God, so I think I'm not necessarily called to do this. Or the excuse that says, I don't know what to say. Or, I might say the wrong thing, so I'm not going to say anything. Or others who might say, well, I'm not sure I'll be able to answer the questions that an unbeliever may pose me. May I assure you, none of us are perfect in our witness. And we don't have to know everything. We just have to know the truth. We just have to know the gospel and we have to know Christ. Have we withdrawn from significant interaction and engagement with unbelievers? Have we separated ourselves from meaningful relationships and conversations with those who have an unbiblical worldview? We are a fragmented society. Are we so fragmented that we're unwilling to lovingly engage with others? There's also another concern I have about what's hindering this outward momentum, and that is in the day and age in which we live, some perhaps have been tempted to reinvent the gospel such that they say now that people's greatest need is they need to be saved from the evil structures of society. And that is really the problem that we need to help people understand. That's what the gospel really is dealing with. My friend, let me just remind you, that what people need to be saved from is the penalty of their own sins which they have committed against a holy and just God. Could it be that, like the quote I've put in the notes there, could it be that we have somehow, with Michael Wilkins noted, become ingrown, complacent, and callous? Well, I don't know what the answer is for you. I don't know what the answer is for the person sitting next to you. Only God and you know the answers to those things. But I would say this, despite all the hindrances and hardships that had the potential to deter the outward momentum of the gospel proclamation, at the end of the book of Acts, it records continuing movement outward. And so I think of the illustration here at the end with waves in mind that come outward toward us. How many of you, I'm sure most of you, have been in the surf and you've been standing there anticipating, here comes a wave. You're not just in with your ankles, you're not in just up to your waist, you're in there, you're in the water and you're, you're standing in the surf there enough that you are going to feel the effect of that wave. Now there's two ways to deal with that wave. You can try to brace yourself and stand leaning into the wave and say to yourself, I'm not budging. Nothing's moving me. I got this. Depending on the size of that wave, you might be soon down on your face in the sand and the water. But there's another approach to a massive wave that comes at you, and that is to utilize something like a boogie board or a surfboard or actually to do body surfing which says, rather than stand against the wave, I'm going to let the wave carry me in the direction and the energy that the wave has propelling me forward. And I would suggest to you, it is the heart of wisdom that says, I'm going to ride the wave of the love of Christ. I'm going to ride the wave of the grace of Christ. I'm going to ride the wave of the glory of Christ and the mercy of Christ in being carried along by His Spirit and being involved in His ministry because I want to see His glory continue to expand far and wide. Would you notice the quote in, the bu- in your bulletin there, in the notes there, in which David Platt says so helpfully, Jesus' worth is the fuel of our mission if we lose sight of that my friend serving Jesus becomes drudgery it becomes just work it becomes suffering with no sense of joy and service that doesn't really mean that much at all well the first point is that there is continuing expansion it seems to me that's what Luke is very strongly indicating at the end of this book. Secondly, though, he also, it seems to me, having begun the book in this way, the beginning of chapter 1, verse 1, we read in the, in the, in the Gospel of Luke, the fir- uh, sorry, in, um, in Acts, the first account I compiled, that's the Gospel of Luke, about all that Jesus began to do and teach. Now, with those words, Luke implies that what follows in the rest of the chapters of his second book, Book of Acts, um, is what Jesus now in Acts continues to do. He began his work and what he did and taught in the Gospel of Luke. Now in Acts, he's continuing his work and he's doing it through his apostles and through the disciples that he has chosen. Now I don't think I'm stretching anything there, right? That's fair square to make that conclusion because that's certainly the the implication of what he wrote. So here's chapter 1 of Acts. It begins with a group of 120 people. And they're intimidated, they're fearful, and they're inexperienced. Not a very impressive start of the Christian faith. Supposedly, moving outward in some propulsion toward world evangelization but look at this God added to that group an ever expanding list of names that's sort of what you notice in the book as it unfolds and this broad range of people diverse people you have rich people in the book of Acts you have people who have not much resources at all you have highly educated people those who have little to no formal education you have men you have women you have Jew you have Gentile You have people who are Roman citizens. You have people who did not have Roman citizenship. Some people are people of high social standing. Some people are people who are common folk. How did that group of 120 people become such a diverse, multiplying, expanding number of followers of Jesus? And I would suggest to you, it all hinges on what happened in chapter 2. When the Holy Spirit is given in great power to indwell the followers of Jesus, empowering them to do the ministry to which they were called to do. Because the book begins with, wait here in Jerusalem until you're given the Holy Spirit. Don't jump out there and start this movement outward. It's almost as if the boulder landed and then there's a momentary pause. And then once Pentecost, the day of Pentecost came, what happens? It's then after that moment, after chapter 2, you have Christians who up to that time were fearful and timid. Chapter 4, they're speaking with boldness because of the Holy Spirit's help. After the day of Pentecost, you have Stephen boldly declaring the gospel in a powerful sermon after which he dies as a martyr. It's after Pentecost that Philip lays aside his racial hatred for people that he grew up hating and avoiding. And he proclaims the gospel to, of all people, Samaritans. It's after Pentecost that Peter finds the courage and the love to lay aside his cultural norms, and he enters into the house. (gasps) Scandal! He enters into the house of Gentile Cornelius, who has never, ever observed kosher laws. It was after Pentecost that Saul, the Pharisee, the religious rule-keeper... Was dramatically transformed from being a a persecutor of Jesus' followers to being a person who boldly proclaims Jesus is Lord and Savior. It was after Pentecost that the church in Antioch sent Paul and Silas to plant churches and to begin churches in towns that had no gospel witness. So here's my point the title of the book acts of the apostles did you notice in the title of the sermon has a line through that i'm convinced it's not a very helpful title it does contain many of the acts and it's true that is the emphasis of the book no question but that's not merely just this record of the actions of uniquely called people uniquely gifted apostles who are on mission from god here's point number two acts is the inspired record of continuing mission. That is, and here's a typo in your notes, our extraordinary God, the word God there's been omitted, extraordinary God working to build his church through ordinary people. You see, Luke's second book of the New Testament is a historically accurate account of what the triune God has accomplished. It is is the fact that he has worked his, he has built his church through fallible, frail, and fearful people. But it's God who's been building his church. God the Father planned redemption from all eternity. It is God the Son who provided redemption through his incarnation, his perfect life, his death on the cross, his, cru- his resurrection from the dead. It is the Holy Spirit who, com- who applies redemption, empowering people to be his witnesses, guiding them helping them. And the fact that Paul was proclaiming the gospel with openness unhindered has to do with the fact that he's carrying, he is carrying on that work, implying that those who follow after him are going to keep doing the same thing. And so we are here today as a result of not just apostles, but many, many, many faithful believers who have come before us People who were fallible, people who were frail, people who did fail, but they're followers of Jesus who have given off the gospel to the next generation. Therefore, here's what I want to conclude with Acts, the book of Acts, chapter 29, is being written now. You say, oh, we have heresy. You're adding to the Bible. No, I'm basically telling you and I'm suggesting to you that the narrative that Acts concludes with places the spotlight on God working through one person, that's true, and then another person, and then another person. So it's Peter, and John, and then Stephen, and then Paul, and James, and Barnabas, and Silas, and Aristarchus, and on and on and on it went. But the common denominator in each of those sections, each one of those actions of that person is that what you're, what you're reading about in those pages is the outward fruit of the work of God in their hearts. It is the work of His Spirit in the work of regeneration and sanctification is being evidenced by the fact that they carried out His mission the way they did. Jesus promised He would build His church. The book of Acts bears witness to that truthfulness. Thirty years later, after Jesus' earthly ministry, it's, it's clear to say that Acts 28, the 20th chapter of Acts, is followed by an unwritten chapter, Acts chapter 29, the record of church history, that shows us that God is continuing to use ordinary people like you and me to make the gospel known in an ever-widening movement of God around the globe. If you are a follower of Jesus right now, your name is is added to a long, 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 very long list of people through whom Christ continues to build his church. What a privilege. What a blessing. Therefore, I want you to be encouraged. Encouraged with two truths. Hear me out. The first encouraging truth is this, that we are blessed to be given the responsibility and privilege to be gospel witnesses who help to bring the gospel to whoever God brings in our path and whoever God would send us to cross other paths with. But we also need to understand the encouragement is that God is the one who is at work in us, both to give us the will and the desires and the motivation and to work for His good pleasure. I don't know about you, but someday I want to hear God say to me, you didn't give in to all the hindrances that you have faithfully served welcome into the kingdom good and faithful servant i want to please christ with my life because why because i am so amazed by him and his grace and love toward me let's pray Before I pray, I just want to once again go back to one of my points earlier today when we talked about things that are hindering the gospel from moving outward. I just want to say one thing I forgot to mention was that there might be some of us here today who are not motivated to be involved in gospel ministry and making Christ known because we really love our sin more than we love Christ. We don't want to give up our sin And if that's true of you, then let me urge you to step back and look at the big picture. Because what you're holding on to is radioactive. It will ruin you. It is destroying your life. It is robbing you of the greatest treasure. You have been sold a bill of goods. And so I'm calling you today. If you're not motivated to follow Christ, to suffer for Christ, to make, great, great, make Christ great in how you live your life and making him known to others. Let me just say maybe it's because you don't know Christ or maybe because you don't love Christ as you once did because you're too busy in love with your own sin. So let me call you to repentance today. Let me call you to a great Savior, to a massively magnificent Savior whose glory and greatness and grace cannot be fully fathomed. It's overwhelmingly wonderful to know Christ. It's overwhelmingly wonderful to make much of Christ because he's worth it. And nothing else is worthy to invest your life in for eternity's sake. Father, examine our hearts today. Give us, we pray, a fresh awareness of how the story continues to be written help us lord to see that we are part of that story we who live in 2018 at the beginning now almost of october here help us to see lord that you are still building your church using ordinary people like us who don't have all the answers who don't have our act together but we love and are willing to serve christ Lord, may we be helped by you to keep making sure that that story goes on and on, ever outward, ever radiating toward those who don't know you. Work this in our hearts, we pray. Through Christ our Lord, we ask it. Amen.